he is pointing to. Now let's go specifically to Exodus chapter 34, where he's going to be very specific about this issue of marriage and intermarriage. Exodus 34, starting in verse 11. Again, he starts off with, Observe what I command you. Follow the statutes of the Lord. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Does that sound familiar? So we see even in Ezra, this echo, they would have connected, um, they would have connected that, the original readers of Ezra would have connected that to this right here, this constant being set apart and separated from the people of the land. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down the altars and break their pillars and cut down their shirim, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Could it be more clear? He's not beating around the bush here. He's not speaking, speaking cryptically. He's leaving no room for interpretation. He's saying you will not go and intermarry the people of the land for these very specific reasons. There is one true and right God. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says do not go and intermix and intermingle, intermarry with the people of the land. Go with me one more spot to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just a, a few verses there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possessions of it. So he brings you into this, this land, this promised land. And he clears away many nations. Some work has to be done. He's clearing away these nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And remember this, and thus, but thus you but thus shall you deal with them, and you shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their shirim and burn their carved images with fire. So God clearly commanded the people of Israel not to be intermarried with the people of the land, that all of this work had been done, and God had done all this work to bring them to the promised land, to clear them of the land. And he says, do not mix with anyone who remains, because surely what will happen you won't just simply be buried, but they will bring you in to false worship. And you will find yourself not worshiping me anymore. You will find yourself worshiping these false gods. It is clear that God commanded his people to stay in the camp. But just like we did in Genesis chapter 3, we didn't listen. 
And the people of Israel did not listen. They did not separate themselves from the people of the land with their abominations, as it says there in verse 1. So what is this abomination? Simply put, an abomination to find something offensive and foreign to God and His ways that makes one unclean. Something offensive and foreign to God and His ways that makes one unclean. So they were marrying people. They were mingling with the people of the land that they weren't just, they weren't just stamped bad people. We're all bad people, right? Apart from Christ, they we're all sinners left her own devices, but these folks, these people, these, these ones they list, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites, all of these, they were far from the things of God. They were embracing these abominable things. They were embracing these things that were offensive and foreign to God, and they made themselves unclean. And these are the ones that the people of Israel did not separate themselves from. Instead, they embraced, and not just as friendly neighbors, but married them and took their daughters and their sons to marry their sons and daughters. Those outside of Israel were not just merely labeled pagans. They lived as such. They were alienated from the laws of God, pursuers of their flesh, and worshipers of false gods. And this is why God said to Israel, stay away from these people. Stay away from these neighboring nations. So this is clearly what he said. Now, who are the ones who are guilty of this? Who are the ones committing this sin of intermarriage? Now, as you read it, there is this, this aspect. It's like everybody's doing it, right? Everybody's doing it. So it's the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites. We're going to see in chapter 10 a little more that dialed in for us a little bit, a little more specific. It actually gives us a list. And so whether it's this widespread issue, whether it's a specific group, we're going to see Ezra's, Ezra's response in the moment. In a moment, it was no small thing that the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, it says the officials and the leaders were all guilty of intermarrying the people of the land. And that's what sin does. It spreads like a cancer. And it posed a major issue to the religious purity of the Hebrew people. And this is what God said would not happen. Intermarriage affected not only the husband and wife, but also the children and their children and future generations. It stained the Jewish genealogy, as it says there at the end of verse 2. That the holy race was mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And so it affected this Jewish genealogy. In the Old Testament, God desired the purity of Israel, the purity of His people. And that has not changed in the New Testament. But yet it has changed to one degree. It has changed and it has not changed. I love when things are both, don't you? Go me to Galatians real quick. It has changed in this sense. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 28. Where are you at, verse 28? I love this, this last part of Galatians 3 where it talks about the guardian who is Christ, the pedagogue, the, the tutor. Let's give on verse 28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this purity that, that the Lord was commanding and seeking and requiring of his people, this ethnic purity, this purity of a race, this holy race, is fulfilled ultimately in the race who is in Christ, those who are in Christ, those who have union with him. And it not, does not matter anymore if you're Jew or Greek or female or, or, or male or slave or free or any of these other descriptions. It matters if you are in Christ. But yet, it also does matter because that purity still matters. But again, the shadow that we see in Ezra, we see the substance in the New Testament. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. Where we see this major application for our life today. In the fulfillment of what we see in Ezra 9, we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Paul says this to the church of Corinth. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God as God has said. And so we see this, this principle. We see this truth of, of the purity of the Hebrews. We see it ultimately applied to the purity of God's people today. And God's people have always been the same people. Those who looked to Him and trusted Him in faith. So the command remains true. That we are to be a people who are pure. So God's command not to be intermarried, it still stands. Now it's important to note that this command has nothing to do with color or race. And we've seen this abuse in the church over the past 150 years and probably more than that. And we've taken this idea that we see in Ezra, this idea that we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to mean something that it doesn't mean. That it is sinful to, to, to intermarry races. This is not the point of the text. This is not what God is condemning. He is not condemning color. He is condemning the purity of His people. What we see Paul condemning in Corinthians are not about color, but it's about faith. It was not God's concern then, nor is it His concern now. It is solely about faith. Do not seek a relationship with someone who is an unbeliever or someone who does not share your understanding of the Christian faith. And just to be very pointed this morning, for those here who are not yet married, listen, any romantic relationship should be for the purpose of marriage. If you wouldn't marry that person, you should not date them. And if you wouldn't marry an unbeliever, you shouldn't date one either. Missional dating, missional marriage ought not to be. Because God is concerned about His people being equally yoked and being like-minded. And that is the sin that we see here in Ezra chapter 9. That's the sin that we see in 2 Corinthians. And we see that sin is cancerous. Secondly, we see the weight of sin. Not only do we see the cancer of sin, we see the weight of sin. 
in verse 3. So we're going to see Ezra, Ezra's response now. These leaders have come and said, Ezra, this is what's happening in the camp. This is what's happening with, uh, with the, the people of Israel, with the Levites and the priests. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities... We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands of the sword to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. So from Ezra's response, we see the weight of sin. As soon as, it says, as soon as he heard this, he didn't wait, he didn't deliberate, he didn't call a meeting he didn't say, let me think on that as, as a leader here in Jerusalem. As soon as he heard this, immediately responds to the sin of the community. So as we look at the weight of the sin, we see two responses from Ezra. First, we see his conviction. We see Ezra's conviction. Now, Ezra is not personally involved in this. This is not his personal sin. He is not intermarried with a Canaanite woman. He hasn't taken a parasite um, uh, person to be his wife. But this is the sin of the community, and he is immediately and immensely convicted of this sin. He felt its weight, and he felt its sting. He knew the consequences attached to this sin of intermarriage that God had given to his people. And he identified with the people of God. But it was the people of God who had sinned, and he was their leader. The response that followed it was intense, and it was genuine. There's no faking what Ezra has done here. So we see this intense, genuine response, this conviction of a leader of Israel. It was immediate. It was physical. We see this penance played out before us. Whenever, as soon as he heard it, he tears his garment. And we see this often in Scripture, whenever there is this... this uh, this immediate kind of feeling of, of despair and grieving. Where you rent your clothes. So he tears his garment and cloak. And then he even goes further than that. I mean, that's one thing, right? To tear your clothes off. That's a sign of, of, uh, of just of grieving and mourning. But then he tears out the hair from his head and his beard. And he sat appalled. So just in that one verse, we can see the weight of Ezra. We can see how the weight of sin sets on him. And conviction fills his heart and his mind. It's intense and genuine. It's immediate. It's physical. It's lengthy. This doesn't just happen and it's over. It says he sits there until the evening sacrifice. And so he, he sits with this sin. 
And then we also see that it's corporate, that everyone gathered around him, this remnant of people, these who also felt the weight of the sin of Israel and these who felt the conviction of this sin and who knew that it was a blasphemous against God, they gathered around him and they all sat until the evening. And so his response is full of conviction. Secondly, his response, we see confession. We see Ezra's confession. He says, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. He says, God, I can't even come to you. I feel embarrassed. I feel the weight of the shame of sin. So it's hard for me to turn my face to you. He confesses his shame. He confesses his helplessness. He says, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. He said, I'm in this over my head. I am drowning. So his helplessness, he confesses that to the Lord. Confesses his shame, his helplessness, and he confesses that they've been there before. Which adds to his helplessness, which adds to his hopelessness, which adds to his shame and his guilt. Because it's sitting the first time that they have sinned against the holy God. It says in verse 7, From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And our iniquities, our kings and our priests, we have been given into the hand of the kings of the land. And he goes through all kind of the, the consequences of the sins of the past. He says, we've walked this path and we're here again, God. Can you relate to that feeling? That you've sinned and you're back again. And you're coming to the Lord and you're just hopelessness can fill your heart. Shame fills your heart and your spirit. But he comes regardless of these feelings, regardless of the shame, regardless of the helplessness, regardless of the history here. He comes to the Lord with a spirit of confession. Confessing the sins, again, not his personal sins, the sins of the people of Israel. And these are the responses that sin should bring to a believer. These are the responses that we too should feel for the weight of sin, for the sting of sin. It should lead us to conviction and confession. James echoes this in James chapter 4. I'll just read you a couple of texts here. James 4, 8 through 10. It says, Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And so James echoes this sentiment. We should be broken. We should grieve. We should mourn. We should be torn as the weight of sin convicts us and it leads us to confession now paul widens this where ezra is torn over the sin of his people over the this small group of people throughout all of the known civilization there paul makes it even wider where he says in romans for all have sinned not just the israelites but all have sinned every single person who's ever been born except christ has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that should just end us, right? I mean, that should, as much sorrow as Ezra felt for the sin of, of this small group of people, 
as we feel the weight of sin that, lo- that led our Savior to the cross, that all of this sin should lead us with so much sorrow and mourning and grief. But sorrow is not the end. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7. We'll start in verse 9. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So this sorrow led the Corinthians to repent. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that the earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also that eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in that matter. So we see as Paul is dealing with the sin of the Corinthian church that this sin is producing a true, godly, genuine grief that leads to repentance, which leads to their salvation. So sorrow is not the end for the believer. Hopelessness is not the end for the believer. Sin and sorrow should ultimately lead to our Savior. Sin and sorrow should ultimately lead to our Savior. So not only do we see the cancer of sin and the weight of sin, but finally we see victory over sin. Let's look at this last part of Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 9. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So we see some hope starting to come into to Ezra's writing here. And now, O Lord, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all, that those, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. 
So we see this hope that is coming in to Ezra's mind here. It's coming in to the, the people of God as they read this. That there is hope that what they deserved, as we saw in Deuteronomy, what they deserved was death. God said, if you do this thing, if you go into the land that I have conquered for you and cleared out for you, and if you go in there and you start marrying their inhabitants, I will wipe you out. I will destroy you. And Ezra has that keenly on his mind because he said, that's what we deserve. But that's not what happened. You haven't killed us all. There's a remnant left. So we've not received what we deserved. There is victory over sin. Ezra acknowledged what Israel deserved. They deserved to be destroyed. But that is not what the merciful God gave them. God extended grace in the midst of their sinfulness. In the midst of their sinfulness, God showed them mercy by withholding from them what they deserved. Go with me to the book of Titus. You can find it. It's in the New Testament, a small epistle there right after 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter, I mean, sorry, Titus chapter 3. As we think about the mercy of God and withholding from us what we deserve. Just a couple of verses in Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, of our Savior appeared, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So not only did God show mercy to those in Israel in the midst of their intermarrying, and we're going to see judgment next week. We're going to see how God deals with this. But He should have wiped all of them out. But He didn't. And that's what all of us deserve is death. That's a mantra here in North Hills. We should have a poster in one of these white walls. What do we deserve? Death, hell, and the grave. That's exactly what we deserve. But that's not what we get for those who look to Christ. We receive the richness and the mercy and the love and the compassion of Jesus. And why? For the same reason that He spared some in Ezra, for the same reason that He spares people today, is because of His love. As Paul says in Romans, while we're still sinners, God doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. But while we are sin sinners in the midst of our sinning, because of His kindness and mercy, He saves. He extends the gift of salvation that flows from the cross to all of those who would look in faith and repentance. Ezra acknowledged what Israel deserved. We acknowledge what we deserve. That God extends His grace in the midst of our sinfulness. In conclusion this morning, Israel sinned grievously against God. Sinned grievously, clearly, intentionally. This was no accident. Oops, I married the woman of the Hittites. Intentionally, grievously. And we can learn from their sin and be reminded of God's command not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, that we might not too fall in that sin that we see on display 
in Ezra 9. But it's not just about intermarriage. But all sin should cause great grief and sorrow inside of us and lead us to confession and repentance. And finally, the only hope that we have in the midst of the hopelessness of sin is Christ. It is not our ability to get our act together. It is not our ability to do right. It is not our ability to keep any form of law. It is only Christ. So for unbelievers, you're called to look to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. And for believers, we are to remember what Christ has done for us through the cross. Let the love of Christ compel us to walk in a manner that is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for this.